Today I'm lucky enough to be joined by Joe Murray, the first ever professional mountain biker. Joe's got a pretty rad story, and I think it's best that he tells part of that story, and we can transition into some of the tech talk about the older bikes, how they've foreshadowed today's bikes, and some of Joe's cool professions, I guess you could say, in testing componentry. Joe, thanks for making it. Oh, I'm stoked. Thanks. <laughs> we just got back from an e-bike ride, my first ever e-bike ride, but you've definitely ridden e-bikes before. Yeah. Well, we've been testing them since 2005. Oh, five. Nice. Yeah. yeah uh, Shimano has like, uh, they call it like new technology division and they take ideas and we go and test them. We build prototypes, go out there and, and sometimes it gets put on the shelf and sometimes they, they look at it and go, oh, we can do something with this. Kind of like Honda, right? Doing the RN01 for Greg Minar back in 2004. Sure, yeah. And now they finally released an electric motocross bike. Well, released it in spy photos or whatever. But Yeah, sometimes you see that stuff at like uh, trade shows or expos. Yeah. You know, just to get people interested. Cool. You, you may never see it again. <laughs> but sure enough, e-bikes, yeah. now here they are. Go figure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, geez, how did that happen? <laughs> I, it just happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, well... Um, before we dive too much into the e-bike talk, which I think we need to get to later, I wanted to ask you about racing in the early and mid eighties. Cause there's some stuff going on in the racing scene back then that is a little different than today in terms of cross country and downhill at the same events. So what were some of the notable events from, uh, from that, from your heyday, I guess you could say in the racing world? Well, mentioning downhill, uh, uh the mammoth, the whole mammoth events come up and they had the kamikaze which was yeah. what one of the first downhill events ever but as far as all the other events those were basically just cross-country racing and a lot of it was on just dirt roads okay and they also and it was a stage race and and they would have a trials event and you if you're racing the cross-country event you would do the trials event gotcha and whether or not you really cared about trials or what you know it was was it like a points thing so you had to yeah. get top oh man yeah and how would they you know I guess trials, you know, dabs, you know, something like that. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking of a lot of the old races and we just raced a lot of just dirt roads because wow. you know, we had rigid forks and friction shifters or we just started using index shifters and uh, it was basically like we were road bikers on dirt roads, okay. more or less. <laughs> and, but there was a whiskey town downhill as well, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. When did that start up? Uh, I think the first year was 83 or 84 it's probably 84 okay and again that was mostly dirt road um even for the downhill yeah i mean it's funny it was called the whiskey town downhill but if you looked at the profile it was like a big uh like a big giant sawtooth that <laughs> would start out higher and go up and down up and down and eventually finish okay down near redding gotcha um it's kind of like the downeyville classic i i yeah i mean more or less i okay. mean I mean, I guess down, Downeyville is not really a downhill so much. I mean, it's got a lot of downhill, but... It's got a lot of climbing in yeah, it, too. Yeah, it's got a lot of climbing, too. Yeah. yeah so. Wild. So you were <laughs> traveling the U.S. racing mountain bikes starting in... God, it must have been 83, 84? Well, my first race was in, in Fairfax, okay. and it was in 1980, and it was called the Zero's Notch Race, and... That had something to do with, it was basically uh, the Pine Mountain Loop, and it finished on uh, Repack. Okay. And Zero's Notch was apparently some tree that um, 
this guy who I don't know his name was Zero something or other. I, there's you, you'd have to talk to Joe Breeze or Otis Guy when them about the history of that. But that was the first race, and I was wearing like Levi's, uh, riding on a Schwinn Cruiser that had you know gears on it. Okay, you know uh, a clunker more or less. A clunker, yeah. But you know that everybody at the time was putting gears on their clunkers. Okay, you know like. Uh, Gary Fisher, Joe Breeze, uh, Charlie Kelly. Um, you know, they like to say they were the, they were some of the first guys to put derailers on those kind of bikes. And there was another group, say, down south. And uh, they got in the Hall of Fame, too. Who were they? That's uh, the Cupertino crew? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so they, they were another, they, they just didn't get noticed, or they kind of just did it, and they thought it was fun, and they didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So your first race is 1980, and at what point did you make a break or whatever and go big and start traveling and make it, start making a name for yourself? Well, uh, so I entered the Rock Hopper race, okay. which was up in Santa Rosa, and I got like second place or third place. Uh, and Gary Fisher walks up and say, "Hey, Joe, you're you know I kind of we kind of knew each other," and he was like, um, "I'm." think of putting a team together and you're look like you're doing pretty good. And I'm like, sure, you know, sounds great. (laughs) I think I was like 20 or 19 or something. So sounds great. You know, somebody wants to give me a bike and help me get the races, you know, because basically back then it was like, you know, pay for your gas, maybe a hotel. Like we camped out a lot. (laughs) Gotcha. So, you know, those are the early early days. Yeah. And there was enough races to go to that. It was a full-time deal. Um, yeah, we have a full schedule all summer. Wow. <clears throat> it was really taken off. There was races all over. Um, we went all over California. Went down to Southern California. There was like a Southern California contingent going okay. on. And there were various events, like some out in the Midwest, some out back East. Right. You know, so, were these yeah. Norba events? Well, Norba came along in, I think, 85. Okay. So it was... You know, before it was just random people putting on mountain bike races, whatever. And and then Norba, you know, everybody realized there needed to be some kind of organization, like gotcha. some national body that would sanction, would do whatever, licensing. That might be good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, and not at the same time. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really, I never really thought about it that much, but there were some cool people. This one guy, Glenn O'Dell. He was the first, one of the first uh, directors of Norba, and he was great. Okay. He'd come out to all the races, and he was oh, yelling rad. and screaming, and nice. he was super fired up on it. He was a mountain biker okay. himself, you know, yeah. so it was, you know, there was a lot of people doing it just because they loved it, and it was just like this, they knew something really cool was happening. So that was what it was all about back then. It wasn't like there was no money or anything. You know? Sure. So. There's a bunch of dudes out. Riding bikes in circles and partying. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we would, <laughs> we would, uh, you know, camp out and have a campfire <clears throat> and drink a bunch of beers and get up the next morning and go ride bikes really hard. <laughs> nice. I have yeah. to ask, there's yeah. a rumor going around that Carl Decker has the shortest Norba number ever. I think like it's like a three digit. Oh, really? Number. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I wanted to ask yeah. you, how many digits does your Norba number have? Um, I, I have my card somewhere. It's, it's got, <laughs> I think it's in, yeah, two digits maybe at least. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so those original races sound pretty grassroots. Did they, were they all a mix of downhill XC and trials? Where, when did that whole trifecta thing come into play? Well, the trials thing was only with that uh, Mammoth event. I think oh, there may be a okay. few others, but... You know, for the most part, 
<clears throat> it was, uh, I mean, I mean, single tracks started coming in more and more, but it just seemed like, I mean, really, when you think about it, there was, really wasn't a lot of single track to ride. I mean, okay. hiking trails, you know, um, they're not really meant to be ridden. Um, I'd say there was a lot, even less hiking trails back then, but wow. back in the old days, we were just riding, getting out in the woods. We didn't really care. We were just out there and we were riding whatever was available. If there was a hiking trail that we could ride, great. For the most part, it was just dirt roads. Okay. Um, so that was pretty much the way the racing was. And racing was more about getting out to different places and going, checking out. Um, it's like an adventure. You're going out in the mountains and totally. just, um, seeing awesome views and, you know, maybe crossing a big creek and trying not to get swept away or something or trying not to get lost even in races if they weren't marked very well. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just random people, sometimes a bike shops, just some, some guy who's in the riding. Yeah. Um, putting on some event and it, you, a lot of times you didn't know what to expect. And obviously as the sport progressed and, more races got popular and it became more of a thing and, you know, and then sponsors and all that kind of stuff. So, so at what point did it start moving eastwards? Um, well, there was an East Coast kind of group, you know, mountain biking kind of just popped up in various yeah. places. And I would say like Fat City Cycles, you okay. know, they, they were one of the first companies out east. And that's probably, geez, what would that be? You know, like early to mid eighties and something like that. I'll yeah. Ask Chris. Um, but, uh, it's just these little pockets of people all over. It just kind of started popping up. And but at what point were you like traveling to further <clears throat> than just California, like maybe to Colorado and then possibly out East, maybe Texas. Yeah. 85, 86. Okay. You know, that's when it starts really taking off. And, uh, so the first few years are predominantly California. Yep. Okay. And, uh, in 1987, um, one of the reasons my girlfriend and I moved is because there was uh, a big problem getting insurance. And so it shut down all the racing, oh, like almost li all of it. Liability insurance for the events. Yeah, liability. I, there was some law. I don't know exactly the, what happened there, but it was an, uh, some kind of insurance thing. Like you had to have insurance or you couldn't get it. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, we were like, ah, oh, these races are getting canceled. and. Oh. And we grew up in Fairfax. What are we going to do? We want to go somewhere and just, so I figured Crested Butte. We'd been there before. Okay. Um, the year before we went out and did some racing and, and Crested Butte was really a hot spot back in the early days. I mean, there were some promoters putting on quite a few events for one little town way up in the mountains that nobody had heard of. Okay. Um, so we went out there one summer and did a bunch of racing and it was amazing. Cool. Uh, and I love the place. It was just stunning. You know, just if anybody's been to Crested Butte, they would know what I'm talking about. You go up this valley and there's this massive mountains all around. And and uh, we were just doing all these amazing rides and a lot cool. of single track. I mean, there were some dirt roads too, but uh, amazing trails. And know? the trails were good on the bikes at the time mm -hmm. and everything? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I think a lot of how single track got into mountain biking, people just got more capable and they were looking for it and discovering it and and that's kind of how the whole single track thing you know it became all about single track eventually right well, mountain so. bikers seem to love to push themselves so if they're able to have fun on the dirt roads the next level of gnarly is getting on something steeper more mm -hmm. narrow sure and then yeah. it just keeps going from there yeah and i think the, the the capability of the bike and just the whole mindset i mean that 
that translates all the way to now where, I mean, we're doing stuff that we never would have thought of <laughs> back then. So. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I think some of, yeah, we can talk about that as we get further into this. So 85, 86, you're starting to make it more to the East coast. For how long are you still racing predominantly, you know, as a pro mountain biker? Um, I, well, I'd say I officially retired in 91, but really that was like, you know, if you've talked to a lot of racers, you can, they say, oh, I officially retired, but they'll just keep racing, you know? And, <laughs> and really what it comes down to is like, I just want to go do the events that are fun. Yeah. You know, not what my sponsor says that I need to do. Cause back then we had a Norbit. So Norbit started a series and we ended up calling it like the tour of the unknown ski areas because because <laughs> a, a lot of the racers were at ski resorts and, okay. um, and we go to those pretty much regular every year and they would have like finals at various ski or it's, it seemed like a, a really easy venue to have a, an event cause sure. you know, you have all the infrastructure structure there and, the, yeah. and, and the, usually the, the resort owners were pretty stoked to have an event in the middle of summer when the place is all closed down normally. So were they using the chairlifts to get up for the downhill race? Um, no, I think, okay. yeah. So <clears throat> downhill kind of came out a little later, like I had mentioned mammoth and the kamikaze mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, I knew downhill was taken off and it kind of wasn't my thing. I wish I had probably gotten into it cause it would have helped me later in life. Or you could have been broken in half. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's really real, too. <clears throat> yeah, I have a friend in Flagstaff, uh, Rob Naughton Fig, and he, he raced the Kamikaze back in the old days. Cool. And he's got some interesting stories, but it's interesting to hear how that, that was like one of the first offshoots of mountain biking. So everything was cross-country in the beginning, and then downhill started, and that became a whole separate thing and it kind of went in its own direction and I was still racing and doing the cross country thing. So yeah. as the, from the early eighties to the late eighties courses are still predominantly dirt roads or do they start, the race courses become more single tracky? There's more single track for sure. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just what became what everybody wanted and, yeah. you know, and, and the events that had featured single track, I guess were, you know, obviously what people wanted to do more. Gotcha. You know, for sure. Man, I remember like 2000, the early 2000s, Norba series was the series, the premier series for rad single track downhill racing. Man, so much has changed over the years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was changing back then really quick and yeah. you know, just, you know, what, 30 years later, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard to imagine what I was doing, you know, with the bikes and everything. So when you originally moved out of Fairfax and Marin County, that wasn't to get better access to riding. It was simply to get closer to more happening races. Yeah, just that one year. And then, you know, California definitely just kept going eventually when the insurance thing got figured out. And, uh, and that was just for one year. But it was kind of maybe more of a reason to, to get out, um, to just move somewhere different and experience a new place. And Okay. And then when I was in Crested Butte, I traveled a bunch from there. And, cool. and that's about the time I started doing more bike design and more okay. that kind of stuff. And so how long did you race for Fisher? Um, until 80, let's see, 86. Okay. And then yeah. was Kona the next brand? No, it was Marin Bikes. Okay. Yeah, Marin Bikes lasted uh, almost three years. So 86, um, I went to Marin Bikes, and then Kona was... 
80, let's see, 86, 87, 88. So okay. yeah, I was around 88. And uh, yeah, and then the Kona thing. And that's, and really Marin is where, like I started doing some product testing with Gary Fisher. I remember we had like people from Shimano come in and even uh, back then Suntour was a pretty big brand. They they built, Suntour was the company that made the first real mountain bike group. Yeah. And they actually dominated the market at the time. And and then Shimano came in and they were very steady and they were, you know, just checking everything out like they do now. And they waited and they kept, you know, improving everything. And and I remember a lot of Shimano people would come by the office, you know, at Fisher Bikes. Where and was the office at the time? It was in San Rafael. And okay. the thing I remember, it was like down the street from Industrial Light Magic, which is the oh. Lucasfilm, where they did all the special effects for all the Star Wars and everything. I have no idea yeah. where that is in San Rafael, <clears throat> even though I lived there for two years. Yeah, it's not there anymore. Okay. But uh, it was before uh, Skywalker Ranch yeah. you know, out in Lucas Valley. But uh, yeah, that was the one thing we were just down the street from there I thought was pretty cool because I've always been into science fiction. And I I wish I, I was actually able to go in that building. <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. So anyway, we had our office down there. It was like a warehouse and everything. And, uh, yeah, we had various industry people come by and you had your office there. So were you working during the week in the office or something? Well, I was basically just a mechanic Okay. and, and Gary, as things progressed, he, you know, he wanted, um, to do more components. I remember the first thing I had done for him is he's like, I want to do this tire. You know, it's like, I got this idea for a bigger tire. I mean, back then it was like, everything was file tread or whatever. Yeah. You and kind of like the Bruce Gordon Rocky Roads. Yeah, you know, like similar to that, but you know, tires were kind of limited and so Gary wanted to do a bigger casing, so he called it the Fat Tracks, I think the name was. And he actually had to get the tire company, which was <clears throat> National Tire in Japan to make a bigger uh it was the tooling had to accommodate a bigger tire which they had never done before. It was like the biggest tire. So so anyway, Gary was like sketching out this drawing and he, you know, he wasn't the best, like say artist as far as drawing, like, you know, really clear, you know, drawings or whatever. And I had done some drafting in high okay. school. And so I said, oh, I could do that. So that's kind of how I started helping Gary out with the design stuff. Gotcha. And, uh, trying to think some of the other things, but, uh, but I, I have to give Gary credit to, you know, saying, you know, he would somebody from Shimano would come and I remember they had a Dura Ace hub that they modified, um, to fit a mountain bike. Cause it, like, so road bike spacing was like 126 and this was like 130. Okay. And so they basically just put a longer axle on a Dura Ace road hub. And Gary's like, Oh, I got this hub. It's like, I don't have time to do this. I, you know, I'm too busy with, you know, doing the business. So he's like, here, you build a wheel and ride this thing, you know? So he, I was just there and I was racing and, and uh, it was really cool. I mean, I, uh, Gary gave me that opportunity to get it. I, I don't think I'm, I, I have no idea if I would have, you know, gotten into it otherwise, right. you know, but here I am testing some prototype parts and doing some drawings and stuff. I'm like, this is pretty cool. You know, how old are you at the time? Uh, I might've been like 21, 22, oh, wow. something like that. Okay. And, uh, and how, how many people are at Fisher besides you and Gary? I think he had about maybe 15 
employees. This is a pretty tight crew. Would you guys all go ride after work together? Yeah, we do do a lot of riding. I mean, we'd go to events, and um, one guy that worked there was Roger Malinowski. Um, He he started um, the Bob Trailers. No way. Yeah. Down in San Luis Obispo? Yep. Um, And his dad, I think, was... I'm, I'm thinking it had something to do with Malcolm Scott racing or something. Huh. I'm not sure that, that I have to Malcolm check. Smith racing. Yeah. He had something to do with motos or okay. something, but anyway, uh, there was just some, you know, uh, various, uh, it's just kind of funny. It's like, like you said, tight knit, but that's all part of how small the industry is. It's like, sure. Um, you, there's all these people, I guess, come from various places, but they all know each other and they and they all become, they all they all like either work for each other or know each other in one way or another, and it's that's the way the industry's kind of been all along. Actually, it's, yeah. it hasn't really changed that much in that respect. Wild. So, at what point do you go from working as a mechanic at Fisher by Gary Fisher Bikes to racing full time? Um, <clears throat> well, basically, I was. So, how I got started working for Gary is. Um, I knew the head mechanic, this guy, uh, Dennis, they called him the whiz and he was actually a roadie for, uh, uh, geez, my brain's not working. Um, Lionel Richie hmm. and s- somehow he got working for Gary and, um, and I knew him one way or another. And he's like, we got all these build wheels to build. And I learned to build wheels at the bike shop. I used to work out before as a place called village peddler. It's uh, it was in Larkspur. Okay. And this little hole in the wall bike shop. I and think it's still there. Yeah. They had moved. I think, yeah, they had moved around a little bit. I think it's still there today though. I yeah, think it's I think right it on uh, college Avenue or whatever, the continuation of Camino Alto. Yep. Yeah. Wild. They, they originally were in another, but same route, you know, basically, you know, same area basically. Yeah. So, so I'd learned to build wheels at that bike shop and, and Dennis was like, we, we need a wheel builder. We got like, I mean, basically he gave me these, you know, three feet high stacks of rims and like a box of hubs and a box of spokes. And I would just go home and watch TV and build wheels. <laughs> and I'd bring this big, for huge, the race team or for production, all production bikes. Okay. Um, because back then it was Richie mountain bikes, the shop was called mountain bikes. Yeah. I mean, that's where the name mountain bikes came from and they, you know, it became a generic term. They couldn't really keep the name, but it was yeah. a cool name of obviously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so there was, but it was complete bikes. So you're building OEM wheels essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So the cool thing was, and is, this is after you were racing for him. No, I, I, I was just kind of, that was like when I started getting into racing really. Um, but, uh, I mean, Tom Ritchie built the frames and Gary and Charlie Kelly ran the business and they'd assemble all the bikes there in this funky little shop in uh, San Selmo, which is right down the road from... Yeah, right uh, by Drake High School there. Yeah, it's it was actually an old train station, Lansdale Station, or one oh, of the wow. buildings from the old train station. Cool. Um, but anyway, so so anyway, I was just some guy building wheels. I was assembling bikes. Yeah. And, and then I did that rock hopper race I had mentioned before, and Gary's like got the team going, and so that's kind of how that all got okay. started. Yeah, you know, I was just, I was just there, you know. Just I feel like you know I was in the right place at the right time. Totally. Yeah, that's how a lot of stuff works out in life. Sure. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so, at what point do you go from working a day job and racing on the weekends to just racing? Well, I kept working. I kept racing and doing bike work, design work at the same time. Okay. <clears throat> Cause, uh, 
So you transitioned from the mechanic thing to more design work that would allow you to do more testing on your bike in the field? Yeah, I mean, basically it was like design something, get some parts made or whatever, go out and ride them. Cool. And it was always about keep going out on your bike and yeah. constantly just putting in as many miles as you can, either because you got a race coming up in the weekend or you got stuff you, you're testing on the bike. And and that's pretty much how I've done it all along. It's like it's... For 30 years now. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's cool. I, I feel pretty lucky. I I mean, one thing that gets me fired up is like I got some new part. You know, I put it on the bike and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go out and ride it. You know, I'm going to go out and get out a good ride that I was going to do anyway. But you get a little more stoked about having something new to try out. You know, it just gives you some incentive. Cool. And sometimes yeah. I get bored of my trails and I change my mm -hmm. bike around and makes the trail new and exciting again. Yeah, you do that all the time too. It's like <laughs> yeah. you got new stuff. You got you got probably got tons of big piles. Oh, stuff I do it the other way too. I'll put on old stuff just to yeah. <laughs> make things a little bit more challenging okay. yeah. sometimes too. Yeah, like like that Ibis bike, right? Yeah, the 95 <laughs> Mojo tie. I love that thing. Sure, sure. I just rode it last week. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about is uh, how these some of these old things have foreshadowed new things. So there's so many examples of this where something comes out back in the day and maybe it's ahead of its time and doesn't catch on. Like the height right is a good example. I mean, there's so many of these biopace chain rings. Now we're seeing oval chain rings all over. Linkage forks is another one. So uh, I want to ask about the Joe Murray future shock. <laughs> I want to ask about that. So maybe we ask about the future shock first. What was the deal with that thing? When did that get invented and was it what was the process of bringing that to the world? Oh, it was, it was funny. Um, I mean, it was right before the RockShock RS1 came out. Right? Okay. And I'm like, uh, I mean, I'm not a suspension designer. I, you know, it was just one of these things. It's like, why don't, like, so anyway, it was at Kona at the time. And we were getting rigid forks made by this company called Spinner in, in Taiwan. And there's this guy, Charlie, there. And... I think one day we were sitting around, it was probably in Taiwan, we were working on bikes, you know, um, with the Kona guys, and I guess had this idea, and I had maybe had made a sketch, and I said, hey, Charlie, I've got this idea for a shock fork, and he's like, oh, shock fork, cool, you know, it's like, so anyway, everybody got fired up on it, and um, I mean, it's it was a pretty limited kind of thing where the links are only like two and a half inches long or something okay and, and the thing was all made out of steel and had some elastomers that moved so it was and, elastomers that created yeah. the actual yeah i mean okay. i mean when you're talking about being a suspension designer engineer i mean elastomers that's <laughs> i mean that's people i mean nowadays it's like whatever you know so well, like, yeah but you had to start somewhere <laughs> sure and certain advantages to elastomers i mean some <clears throat> bikes today still use elastomers look at the moves i mean whole bunch of these soft tails, but how much that thing actually changed the offset as it went through the travel? Um, not, not a whole lot, right? Really. It's, I mean, it had, it was more about having suspension than having change in handling. It's like more about taking the edge off the bumps mm. basically. And, and the project, I mean, we made probably a couple hundred of them you okay. know? and it's, and like I said, it was like right the time when the RS one was coming out. So it's like, RS1 looked more motorcycle. Well, you know, and Paul <laughs> Turner, I mean, he knew really what he was doing. I mean, it was hydraulic and it was telescoping all this, like it, it, the, the, the technical aspect, I mean, the, the fork we did, the future shock was like nothing compared to that. So, so we're like, well, you know, it's like, are we going to make this thing or are we going to spec these bikes with a rock shock? Gotcha. And that was about the time 
the Manitou fork came out, um, you know, Doug Bradbury, mm -hmm. and that did have elastomers, but, you know, really what it came down to was a telescoping fork. I mean, that's, I mean, there's over the years and then the, the, the fork you have now. The, yeah, of course, I'm the guy that's asking about this and I'm the yeah. one <laughs> stand out with this new modern truss design. Yeah. So the truss fork, I mean, but that it's just interesting because, you know, um, it's old as new again. Yeah. You know, there's, there's this book called the data book that a lot of old school cyclists have it. I, I'm trying to remember who actually published this book, but for the most part, it was a bunch of old drawings of French bikes from like the 1920s, okay. like through, you know, uh, just pre and post-war and everything. And you look at this this book, and it's all these really nicely drawn, um, just uh, you know, technical. Like they're not technical drawings, but they're. Um, if you look at anything from the old days, it's rarely were there photos. It was like a really cool drawing, a three D drawing of something, right? And then and you look at it, and there's like there's like roller cam brakes in there. There's oh. suspension forks. There's linkage forks. There's full okay. suspension frames. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. And you it's look at that done before. Yeah. And that gets back to, it's been done before, but yeah. you know, like the truss fork obviously is nothing like the, the future shock we did. Um, but it's the basic, very extreme basic idea is similar, similar idea. Yeah. yeah. So that gets back to like, it's been done before, but then, you know, you take just basic mechanical ideas and you, you you obviously expand on them and there's there's you know it's 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 cool to um have a different perspective about how to come about something and that's the way you do it you go like do forks have to be telescoping no they don't um yeah. and there's been various companies um like you go to trade shows and you always see some little booth somewhere and somebody's got some telescoping fork or whatever and then the lawwell leader was a or a, not a telescoping, but a linkage fork. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting because, you know, telescoping forks have dominated the market and that's like the standard. But, you know, the truss fork just shows that you can take something and take it a step further. And that's what's really cool about bicycles because there's these people that do that all the time. And the market just constantly evolves in crazy directions for how small of a market it is. Mm -hmm. There's kind of an insane yeah. amount of new ideas being, or old ideas being rehashed in a new way. Sure. sure. I think yeah. it's just such a people, have such a passion for the mountain bike. Yeah. And that's what I really love about mountain bikes um, and cycling in general. It's just like people are into it because they love it and they can take ideas <clears throat> and it's, you know, they can start up a small company and maybe they'll make a little bit of money. Maybe they'll get successful. Maybe they'll, you know, a lot of them fail, of course. But you see a lot of innovation going on and a lot of ideas. I mean, some of them are pretty goofy, but some of them are pretty cool. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's great. I, that's the part I really love about it. It's just it keeps things interesting and, and the people too, you know, because the, the reason, you know, nobody's in this industry for the for the money really like bit, almost everybody's not <laughs> yeah there's yeah. not much money to be made in bikes that's yeah <laughs> but there's a lot of fun to be had so. yes exactly <laughs> riding bikes is yeah. the best part and yeah. then like-minded people tend to be in this industry hence why we're all here yeah 
Yeah. Um, what are, what of the items that have kind of come back from the past are your favorite or most stand out the most to you? Oh, geez, that's that's a tough one. Um, I'm thinking. I mean, you had mentioned the height, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so everybody uses dropper posts, right? Yeah. But you think of the height, right? What is it? It's just like a little spring. Um, so Joe Breeze came up with this idea. Joe Breeze built some of the first mountain bikes and some of the most uh, desired collectible bikes. I think he built 20 or 30 bikes, and they're just they're works of art. They're they're extremely well built and ex- and really meticulous, and they were like nickel plated, and so. Um, so the, the one component that Joe Breeze designed was the height, right? And it was just a coil spring with two ends on it. And there was a clamp on the seat post and it, the other end was on the, mm-hmm. the seat clamp. And you want to make sure your seat posts fit really nice and smooth in the frame, which yep. a lot of high end bikes, that's the way they should have been. Um, nowadays. Steel bikes with alloy seat posts though. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and actually Joe Breeze sponsored me. And I used one. Cool. And it's kind of crazy to think. Like, I was racing back in the old days with, you know, rigid fork or whatever. And I had a drop, a, a dropper, I guess you would Would you use it. it in cross-country races? Yeah, I used it. I did. And, cool. And I, um, and when did I, you stop using it? Um, that's, that's a good question. I probably used it for two or three years. And I think okay. um, <clears throat> the biggest issue was you had to reach back. Yeah. And so there was some... Uh, question about really how effective it was when you're because obviously you need the trail starts getting steep and 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 rough and you want to get your seat down and you're trying to grab your quick release the most hectic part of the ride yeah (laughs) you're coming in (laughs) one-handed yeah so today i had to do that the gopro had to do pedaling cornering while trying to turn it on and off. oh there you go yeah flipping (laughs) levers and stuff you know speaking of levers there was a company called ird this guy Mm -hmm. rod rod moses um, where was he in Southern Oregon, somewhere like Ash, maybe Ashland or Medford or something, or they made really rad cantilever brakes as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Well, he took the height ride a step further and he designed like some cam device that would tighten the, the, the seat clamp on the frame. And then there was a cable that went to the uh, lever on the handlebar. That'll never catch on. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, what they were dealing with at the time was just trying to, you know, crank this lever. I mean, sure, you're t- you're moving your hand to the handlebar, but at the same time, this thing had took a tremendous amount of force to yeah. turn on and off. And it was, you know, it was it was like one of those ideas. So anyway, you're, you're talking about how something from the past has come to the, the present and like dropper posts. I mean, you, nobody, most real, most mountain bikers can't imagine not using one now. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to tell people that I use my dropper post lever more than my shifter. I could see yeah. that. Yeah. Man, so. although, man, I still love riding my old single speeds and my old hardtail that don't have the dropper post. Because if I did have a dropper post on those bikes, I would outride the capabilities of those wheels, the tires, the sure. frame, the fork. And then there's something extra pure about not having to think about when to drop it, when to put it up. And that whole riding style that you have to deal with, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of different. It makes sure. something at, like an easy trail becomes a little bit harder when you have to ride it like that. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, that whole style, that whole technique of riding with a high post but still hitting some jumps, that's definitely a, <laughs> a lost art at this point. It really is. Um, Thank goodness. <laughs> well, and you, you said it was a single speed. 
I prefer the single speed yeah. most on that setup. There's just no complications at all. Just simple. Yeah, you look at a single speed bike, um, and that's just all like incredible simplicity. And there's a lot to be said for that. Like we use this term at Shimano, single speed mind. Ah. Um, this is somebody who doesn't want levers, wants something that's really simple. They don't have to work on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess a really extreme version would be like a single speed with a rigid fork. I mean, that's, but go ride one of those. I mean, you're going to be tough, yeah. <laughs> but you want something where it's, you're not thinking about anything. I mean, the bike's not, the bike's not going anywhere. You yeah. know, you don't even have to oil the chain every time you just put a belt on there. You definitely, yeah, sure. Whatever. But you know, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's a whole another, that, that's still some, that's still a thing. Oh yeah. You know, so keep it simple. <laughs> don't waste yeah. mental real estate. on worrying about your bike. Yeah. Well, we should probably move into what you do today with product testing and design work. So when you do design work for a frame company, what kind of stuff are you actually designing for them? Is it geometry or is it the suspension kinematics or is it other features of a bike like where the layout of the tubes or what, what is it that you do with design work? Well, the last job I had doing that was with Voodoo Cycles. Um, and actually that would be Marin Bikes. Okay. So I was uh, working with the product managers at Marin and... There was a guy named Daryl Voss mm -hmm. that they had contracted to design their high-end model. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes down to that, um, nowadays, um, I would say 20 years ago, the product manager may have been the frame designer. Hmm. Um, typically. The product manager. And... and just so people understand here, when I hear the term product manager, it means the guy who sits behind a spreadsheet and figures out what part goes on which model of bike. Sure figures out how to have the two or three different price points and tests all the various possibilities of SRAM or Shimano for the price, sure. assesses lead time and all that. So there's, there's that product manager. But uh, <clears throat> when I started out in the early days, I would design, do a CAD drawing of a, or even before there was CAD, I'd draw out a frame. Okay. And, but, you know, it's hardtails, you know, so... So you have you design all your hardtail frames, and either there's steel aluminum, and there was titanium, and and uh, bef well before carbon, and you, then you'd have to go to your spreadsheets, like you said, and figure out all the parts. You know, back then we'd have these big thick uh, books that just had a bunch of Taiwan and companies. I mean, there was even you know, well, there's still Japanese companies, but everything was Japanese or Taiwan. It seemed like so. Being a product manager back then was pretty simple or a lot of work with just a lot of paper. And then as things progressed, we got into suspension and carbon and all higher technology. Then there would be the, the, the suspension designer. Then there'd be the frame designer. Like, like Ibis, for instance, they have their engineers, but they're not designing the suspension. Yeah, that's like Dave DWs. Yeah, so they got some guy like the DW, and then they've then they've got Colin doing all the the CAD work on mm -hmm. you know, and then they, then there's Roxy doing the industrial design. So that's you know just to mention Ibis, which you know. <clears throat> so things are take a, a lot more resources now. There's a lot more specificity with each position or whatever. Yeah, um, and uh, and that. That that's because everything you know we've got carbon frames and uh, and we've got high tech suspension designs and people are refining suspension and uh, so so as far as what I've been doing I get more into the just the product tester side 
where, you know, give me a prototype, I'll go ride it and evaluate it. And I know enough about the mechanical aspects of it to where I can make some suggestions. Um, but as being a product tester, you also have to be very descriptive. You don't just want to say, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you want to, you know, basically be very um, detailed and you want to give whoever you're working with, either if it's, uh, you know, the product manager or the designer or the guy who's even designed the suspension or, in my case with Shimano, it's the components. So um, it's a lot of work. Um, and it took me many, many years to get to the point where I could translate my testing Either I'm collecting data or I'm describing something. I'm writing reports to the product managers or the engineers. So yeah, it's uh, it it really comes down to this this constant ongoing thing where everything's based on like Shimano likes a lot of numbers. Um, how how I can describe what those numbers are? Like they like percentages. Like do you like this twenty percent or do you like a ten percent? That's kind of ridiculous, oh, wow. but. Um, but we get into, say, testing like a spring or we test, um, say the amount of effort there is into the shift lever, you know, just, you know, quantifiable stuff. Okay. Um, like say the new XTR, it's like you go to shift it, it's got less effort and a shorter stroke. Yeah. So that's one example. That's cool. So you know, how just stuff like... How much of your time is spent riding versus writing about in front of a computer the ride you just did? It's uh, it varies, but the the most tedious part, as you might imagine, is sitting in front of a computer writing reports. And I have. Do you have an equal amount of ride time to report time? Mm, there's more ride time. Okay. Okay. Um, but uh, a lot of I mean, if I added up all taking notes and everything, and notes are a huge thing. It's like. We go out and test something, and I have to remember everything I'm thinking about when I'm riding, so yeah. I'll write the notes down. Yeah, like you get back to your van at the trailhead or you get back mm -hmm. home, and first thing you do is start jotting things down. Yep, and sometimes I'll take notes on the trail. Yeah. That, that helps a lot because I'm riding, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I, like you, you, when you're riding, you're kind of in this stream of thought. It's like you're thinking about the trail. You're thinking about your life. You're thinking about, obviously, what you're testing. And, yeah. And every time this, like, kind of idea pops in your head and he's like, I got to stop because I'm going to forget this one or, cool. you know, and, uh, so that, that happens a lot. Um, but yeah, I go through all my notes and it's, you know, the report thing is all about, like I mentioned, it's like, you have to put things that people can use. In yeah. There. Find the vocabulary that makes sense to the yeah. guy who's designing it. That's relatable. Sure. Take a subjective yeah. feeling and make it as yeah. objective as possible. Yeah. And, uh, I, I like to think, my job is complaining all the time, but, <laughs> and a lot of times I'll just keep mentioning the same thing. That's wrong. It could be something that's been going on for years. It's like this, I'm going to keep writing about it. Um, but, uh, it's the objectivity is good. You don't, you know, obviously you don't want to keep mentioning how bad something is, but I rarely, um, mention if something's good unless okay. it's important to the overall product development thing. Cause um, the, these guys who are working on something, they need to know how important something is if it is good. So they, that's something that, um, as a rider or what other riders want, this is an important thing to them. And if it's good, we need to emphasize that we need to make it, we need to make sure it doesn't go away. Gotcha. If it's some certain thing about how it works. Um, 
but mostly it is, you know, it is all about just what the problems are. Yeah. And I like to think details add up. So it could be one tiny little thing. I mean, you, something can be so small that it's like, it's not a problem, but you want to, you want to list out every little thing. Cause I think all those details really do add up. Gotcha. You know, like you can take one thing it's insignificant, but if those five insignificant things or 10 of them are there, then that's, that's obviously a problem. Well, with how good bikes have gotten in this day mm. and age, the only way to make, well, unless you have some off the wall, totally crazy idea, which is like the trust fork, for instance, you can go that route. Or in reality, a lot of the best developments have been smaller tweaks to already pretty good designs. And then after a model year or two, you're like, holy cow, this is way better than what I was used to. And it's just, it's hard to notice because that A to B might be not be so huge, but then A to C, it's this big difference. But one thing mm-hmm. I, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask you in this podcast is what's the weirdest, goofiest part you've ever had to test? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. That's, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> oh, geez. <clears throat> um, Don't get anyone in trouble here. Or do. Yeah. I mean, it's your call. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, there is one part that Shimano actually produced, and it was called... We, we, it came up the other day as called. Is it dual control? Well, dual control is pretty (laughs) wacky. I mean, I mean, I, I like, uh, it is wacky. It also makes a lot of sense, but there were just some things about it that, um, there were some kind of fatal flaws with it, but sorry to interrupt there. (laughs) No, no, that's okay. I mean, that, I mean, when you think about it, it's like you shift by flipping (laughs) your brake levers. It's like, yeah, that, that, yeah. Um, there's, there's some stories on the internet of uh, like the 10 worst parts ever made and you'll see that on we did a podcast about yeah. the goofiest things made and that was one of my contributions sure. to um yeah i i would mention another thing it was called the satellite shifter oh up on the bar end yeah so nobody uses bar ends anymore but i mean it was a cool idea you Dude, put, i wanted this XT, they were only xtr series right I think so, yeah. I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. They never was, made it past XTR. <laughs> I was in middle school and I saw those on the yeah. pros' bikes. I was like, I need those. I didn't <laughs> even have bar ends at the time and I still wanted them. Yeah, it's funny. They even had like skinnier cables for them and everything. <laughs> it's like, that was, that was kind of weird. Um, you know, Biopace, so you, we can get back to how things of um, what was done in the past is now the future. And really, when you think about Biopace, it was kind of wacky. Um, they use some strange engineering ideas. Um, strange isn't the right word. I think, you know, they, they were trying to quantify, um, really what biomechanical advantage you're going to have by having the, the chain ring get bigger so that it slows it down. And, Mm -hmm. um, so basically when, when the chain ring gets smaller, you get more leverage and it speeds up. But when the, chain ring gets bigger because it's oval then it slows it down but your torque goes down too so there's all, all kinds of stuff going on so it's kind of complicated but uh in but then these oval chain rings have come back and i've tested them and you know it's interesting you know you get some riders who swear that they give them more power mm-hmm. and some people say oh well you know it feels a little weird and maybe it's not doing anything maybe it's not enough but but that's just one example um did you have to test the original biopace I raced on it. You raced on yeah, it? Yeah, I raced a lot. But was it like yeah. a testing relationship with Shimano or are you just mm, Back then... Working at an OEM, I guess. Yeah, it's like... So even before I officially started working for Shimano, I was also a, like a test monitor. Like, okay. So they have a lot of riders. They just give out parts and they ask for some feedback. And 
things are a little simpler back then. Um, but I did work with some product managers. Um, actually I got some of the first index shifters. Oh, cool. Yeah. They were this, they were actually shifter that they had already made for like commuter bikes. It was called Positron. Positron. Yeah. That's a Pos- great name. Positron was a word, uh, uh, trademark word they used for a lot of stuff. That okay. There was all kinds of index shifting. I don't even was. know what Positron is, but I know I want yeah. it. That's a sweet <laughs> so, term. So final thoughts here. Where do you think the bike industry is headed and what's been your favorite part of, of this ride thus far? Um, I, I think the full suspension bikes keep getting better and better. That's, that's totally awesome. And it's, it's definitely increased the capability of bikes. Um, it's made, I mean, we're riding trails now that we never thought before and that, has just made things so much more fun. It's made me a better rider. It's wanted, like it's pushed me to be a better rider. I'm, I'm out there like I have to be on, like this is my job, so I have to do what everybody else is doing. Not so much oh, I have man. to, but I want to. <laughs> and these bikes have totally made it possible. Cool. And so you've got carbon and all this really cool like suspension technology and then the drivetrain, everything is like evolved like crazy. And that part is, I mean, so anyway, so where is it going? Um, I think, uh, we're probably going to keep pushing for simplicity because that's where one bike came from. You know, people just want one shifter. Yeah. Um, there's going to be more electronics, but you know, you're talking about costs. It's really a big balance. It's like people, you know, they, they're already spending $5,000. I mean, there's, I mean, you, you can go out anywhere on some single track and you see all these super expensive bikes. And Although a $5,000 bike today is so much more capable and so much more mm-hmm. dialed than a $5,000 bike from 10 years ago. Oh yeah. And you can buy a $1,500 bike that's full suspension. It's a pretty decent bike. Totally. Yeah. So, um, as far as where the industry is going, I think it's just, uh, on the big picture where like the whole production thing is getting streamlined. It's like all these features are coming down and down in price. Um, but then as far as, like the super expensive stuff, I could see more electronics coming. And now we got electric bikes. I mean, we're going to have electric bikes that are going to be like one really amazing uh, electronic device that's going to do all this crazy stuff. Like you can probably imagine like um, dropper posts going up and down automatically. I can't wait for that (laughs) to happen. I'm so sick of sitting down before all this gnarly stuff. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think for the average rider though, I think that they'll see... Uh, all the technology available on a lower price. And uh, it really comes down to weight. It's just the materials, right? Um, So really when you're you're spending, you know, when you buy an $8,000 bike, it's basically the same bike as that $3,000 or $2,000 bike. It's just all the components are so much lighter. There's more carbon, there's more titanium or aluminum parts. And after two or three years of riding it, it's still more rideable than the Mm -hmm. lower end one would be. It's more beat up. Sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, bikes are, you know, the durability has kind of been good. I mean, obviously the bikes are ridden harder, so they have to hold up better and still be light. Yeah. So yeah, if I've, if I could predict where the market's going, sure. I might make a little more money or if I wanted (laughs) to like start a company or something, but yeah, that's, that's the thing that you've got so many people out there. There's so many companies and everybody's, their brains are going around and around thinking what's the next best thing. And, and all these companies are developing all this crazy stuff, some of which we talked about a little bit. Yeah. And, and Shimano, too. I mean, they're, it's just the, when you think about, like, just the, the push to keep 
innovating and it's I think the cycling industry is one of the the most innovative really um, of anything so that's yeah it's well, it's going to be interesting it's going to and then like the electric bikes so there's a lot going on yes a lot yeah so <laughs> it's it, there's there's a lot to think about and you can keep riding you know they're building more trails all the time I mean that's another thing I mean the the number of trails everywhere, it's, it's just exploding. There's so many places to go ride now. Access has never been better. Yeah, yeah, We're in kind really of a good. golden age for mountain biking. We really, really are, yeah, and it's, it's great. I feel really lucky to be a part of it, yeah. Cool. Well, I feel lucky that you joined me on this podcast. Well, thanks. Here. Yeah, this has been great. It's been great talking. You had some really good questions and getting me fired up thinking. <laughs> yep. Thanks. Yeah, sure. I got a lot more practice to do in my podcasting too, but this is, this is good. Well, thanks. Well, thanks yeah. for coming on. Thanks for loaning me an e-bike today. <laughs> my first e-bike experience. I might have to come back in a year and ride one again. That'll be cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll get on some uh, really crazy steep stuff. That'd be sweet. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun <laughs> today though. That was cool. So my crank yeah. arm stayed on most of the day. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm going to hit the stop button here. Thanks for joining me. All right. Thank you.